Welcome to the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. Today's guest is always on the bleeding edge of technology. He's able to predict both tech and business trends. Bob Cooney is widely considered one of the world's foremost experts on location-based virtual reality and the author of the book, Real Money from Virtual Reality. I'm really super excited to introduce my good friend and colleague, Bob Cooney, to the show. Welcome, Bob. Oh, dude, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Alan. It's my absolute pleasure. It's been a long time coming, this interview, but we're here, we're excited, and we just are coming off the heels of the major North American show, IAPA, which for those of you listening and you haven't been there, it's basically Disney World for VR, AR, and out-of-home experiences. You were there. Let's talk about what you saw and, and what are the trends coming in out-of-home entertainment. Yeah, it's an amazing show. I've been going this, I think this is like my 27th IAPA or something like that. And um, I think my first one was 1991. And over the last four or five years, we've seen VR every year just grow in not only the number of companies bringing VR, AR solutions into the market, mostly VR at this point, but the quality is every year measurably increasing. And that's the thing I think that has me so excited is three or four years ago, there was just a literally handful of things that you would even remotely consider as an operator. And last year, there was confusion now because there was you were starting to see a lot of good stuff. And this year, it was just overwhelming. And so, yeah, we're seeing real, real quality come into the market. Okay, you've seen pretty much everything there is out there. What's one thing that blew your mind this year? Ooh, good question. Um, the rise of unattended virtual reality systems. There was a company called LAI Games, which has been around for decades. They're based out of Asia. They build arcade games. And a couple of years ago, they took a license from Ubisoft, Raving Rabbids, which is a really popular IP. They merged it with a D-Box motion base, and they created a VR ride for family entertainment centers, arcades, and theme parks. It's a two-player ride. It was fairly cost-effective, but they recommended it be operated without an attendant. And it was the first VR attraction that came out where you didn't need to staff it. And the profitability of that really made a big difference for operators. And now this year, there was a, uh, another company called VRsenal that had um, an arcade game cabinet with v that was VR-based that was unattended. And, and it was running Beat Saber, which is obviously one of the most popular games out there. And, um, and so we're starting to see companies realize that maybe we don't need attendance. Maybe people are smarter than we give them credit for. Maybe they can figure out how to put a headset on their face. Uh, maybe they will clean it by themselves if they care about that. And and so I talk about, a lot about the, the four-minute mile. Once um, it was broken, people thought it was impossible. People thought if you tried to run a four-minute mile, you would die. And once it was proven that it could be done, hundreds of people have done it since. And I think this notion of unattended VR is similar to that. And we're going to start seeing more companies give more credit to consumers that they're smarter than we think they are. When I was in China, they have VR kiosks in a lot of the malls, and some are attended, some are unattended. But I, I managed. I was walking through the mall, and I was like, "Oh man, VR!" And I pulled out my phone to videotape it because this was two years ago, and I watched somebody fall completely on their butt because they were downhill skiing in an unattended thing, and they fell on their butt, and then they got back up and did the thing. And then I was in another mall videotaping a kid in VR, and he fell on his butt. So there are still some risks with this. How are they mitigating that? Because I know the, the Rabbids one is using a D-Box and you sit in it. So is that kind of what you're seeing? Because I know uh, with Beat Saber, for example, you're not, there's no real risk of falling over. There's risk of somebody walking into your space and whacking oh, the yeah. controller, right? And so 
what the arcades are doing is they'll put rope stanchions around those. I think the seated motion simulators are pretty safe. One of the Facebook groups yesterday, um, somebody posted how their son was in the hospital <laughs> with a chipped tooth and a broken ankle from playing VR and falling. Um, I don't know what game they were playing, but they fell in, hit their head on the table. And, and so there's, there are some um, real risks around VR that could limit adoption. And that's uh, certainly on the consumer side. I think that's a problem. So, Bob, how are these companies uh, mitigating this risk or what are you seeing that's mitigating this? I think operators and setup and safety is important. A lot of them are putting uh, the unattended stuff in view of like a redemption center where there's always somebody behind the counter redeeming tickets for prizes. Um, I think the Beat Saber arcade game, they're putting rope stanchions around them or cordoning it off so people don't walk into the space where somebody's actually playing the game. I think the seated stuff is inherently safe. There's always a chance to get toes connect crushed and things like that if people are careless. But um, I think that's something operators have been dealing with since the very first driving games that had motion systems built into them. And um, I do think it's one of the things that could really slow consumer adoption, though. If you remember the Wii when it first came out, people were smashing televisions with controllers playing tennis, yeah. right? It's, it's interesting you say that because we've been doing demos with the Quest and the same thing. You set it up, you set up stanchions, you know, and it doesn't matter. People still, they get excited. They get in there. They don't realize they totally lose control. And that's the power of VR. They get right in there. And we've had somebody get punched in the face with a controller uh, recently. And it was like, oh, geez, it was within the stanchions. They were outside of it. And they just, the person lunged out of nowhere. So It's the paradox of presence, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're really present in the experience. You forget where you are. The fantasy reality line blurs. And then next thing you know, like... And that's the inherent problem with it is that that's like for it to be effective, that's not going to go away. And so I think, I think safety systems and, you know, one of the things I would expect is that is inside out tracking gets better and the cameras get better. If you get too close to an object, maybe the pass through video kicks on. They're going to have to figure out a way to make this stuff safer overall. Yeah, the way the way uh, the Quest did it where you can draw out your boundaries and then if you walk through the boundaries, it goes from being in virtual reality to being in the real world uh, or pass through camera. That, that's actually a really nice solution. And what we've been doing now is putting people in VR when they're outside of the boundary and then having them walk into it. And it's this kind of aha moment where they go from the real world of a crappy pass through camera to the completely virtual world. And it's, it's that moment of delight that you see. Now, speaking of moments of delight, because you get to see not only try these experiences, but you, you're really intuitive into the emotions that people are feeling when they're on the rides. What are some of the rides or experiences that you're seeing that really resonate with people? Yeah, look, I think that you know, it's funny. There's a, there's a narrative in the industry that we have too many zombie shooters, but the numbers show that that's actually what people want to play. I mean, people love horror. Horror has had a block, another blockbuster year in Hollywood. And I think people like to be scared. And, and that's one of the easy emotions that you can trigger is fear. And so whether it's Richie's Plank and fear of heights or zombie outbreak shooters and stuff like that, I think people love to be scared. And the interesting thing is statistically, women like horror more than men. There's all these great viral videos out there about women screaming in these zombie shooters. But you know, I think that's the thing that really triggers emotion is that is fear's the easy one. It's the low-lying fruit. And I know companies that have put out multiple titles but their horror titles are always their number one earning and number one ticket seller. And so I think you're going to continue to see that until we figure out how to really tell stories and drive other types of emotion in VR. And I still haven't seen a lot of that yet. What about racing games? I tried one the other day and it was absolutely mind blowing. It was a six DOF 
uh, simulation machine. So the whole thing was riding on kind of multiple pivot angles. And when I hit a bump on the road, I felt the bump on the road. It was just, and when I hit the wall, of course, going too fast. Yeah. I hit the wall and it the whole thing just rattled me. It was wild. Yeah, look, I think that there's a lot of bad motion simulation out there in VR, which tr- triggers motion sickness. Um, mm-hmm. If it's not done well, it can actually exacerbate the simulator sickness that you get. Um, there are a couple of companies that seem to be doing good. Like I did Mario Kart VR from Namco, which is a really fun game. And, and I think that that makes sense to have in VR too, because you have to look over your shoulder to see where your competition is, to see who's going to throw things at you, or you can throw things. One of the surprise hits from the IAPA show to go back to that was a company called Unis out of Taiwan. I think they're based, they had a two player motorcycle VR simulator and it was a track racing motorcycle game. And then when you're leaning into the turn and you're looking over your shoulder, that presence of VR and to be able to look behind you and see your competition coming up to you was really well executed. And so I think, and and I got no motion sickness at all out of it. So it was really well done. So I think, I think companies are getting better at it and they're using it in appropriate ways. I think that my personal opinion is in in a, in a drive racing simulator in a car, you have mirrors, like you don't look over your shoulder. And so I don't know what advantage VR really brings. The resolution isn't as good. The frame rate's not as good as you're going to get in a big monitor. I almost feel like for driving simulators, you're better off with a really good 4K monitor at 200 frames per second with good mirrors. The one that blew my mind was uh, was three panels kind of stuck together. Exactly. I think that's a much better use of the technology. Totally agree. It was wonderful. Uh, but, you know, I did I did drive because uh, I was at the ITSEC show, the industry inter... The big military simulation show. Right? Big military yeah. simulation training. So I got to drive a tank. That was cool. Uh, I got to fly a helicopter, which was interesting. I crashed it <laughs> dramatically. And the guy's like, I don't think I've ever seen anybody crash this thing like this. <laughs> but here are multi, multi-million dollar simulators. And they're not as good as the ones that were at IAPA. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that, you know, how much of that is just because the military is used to paying, overpaying for everything, right? We have all heard about the $9,000 hammer and the $40,000 toilet. And how much of that is just the nature of the accuracy? Like one of the things, I did some work with Zero Latency and they did some work with the, the Australian army in building simulations. And one of the things that everything has to be about muscle memory when you're in the military, right? And mm-hmm. so these simulations have to be incredibly accurate down to button placement and things like that. And um, and because it's generally lower volume, I wonder if that has a lot to do with it. It could be actually. It could be the uh, rigorous demands from the client, but also the fact that they're not buying hundreds of them; they're buying tens of them. Yeah, so totally makes sense. And then, of course, everything's custom for them, and, and you can't share the content out. So there's that. Yeah, and, and and look, I think the military's been doing this stuff for a long time, and we saw a couple of military simulation companies kind of stick their toe in the amusement water. And that happened a lot with like companies like Doron Simulation and that, that did military simulators and wound up going to um, doing some big, large format, large capacity motion simulation in the amusement industry. And I think there's been some cross-pollinization between the military sim companies and the amusement and entertainment sim companies. I think on the smaller scale stuff that's more in the game space, um, that's just, I, I just don't think they, they get that market. There was a company called Radon, who was probably at ITSEC, who was a client of mine a couple of years ago. They brought a 50 cal simulator and they put it in kind of an arcade cabinet and created a game that was kind of like space bugs. Think Starship Troopers, right? With this giant yeah. 50 cal simulator and a butt kicker on it to create recoil. And it was called Total Recoil. It was a great experience, but like 
entering into the cool. arcade game business. They're really from being a military contractor, just chalk and cheese. And I think they struggled to try to make something that was inherently fun and replayable. I think that's one of the big challenges in the entertainment industry is people are looking for games you want to play over and over again. And training simulation, you're doing it for a different reason. It doesn't have to really be replayable from a fun standpoint. And I think that there are real skills in creating games regarding core loops and dopamine rushes and, and things like that that get you to want to play it again that the military companies just don't need to understand. So let me ask you a question, Bob, because this really intrigues me. You talk about these things that make something replayable and how maybe military sim or even training um, is not kind of not looking for that. But shouldn't we, as, as people creating training simulations, be thinking about that? Because if we make it so that it, people want to do it over and over again and have that repeatability and that that want to play it again, wouldn't that kind of increase their uh, ability to become proficient in whatever it is they're training. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's a different mindset. So when you're training to become better at something, that's a mindset, right? And and when that's my profession, yeah. I'm driven to do that. When I go to have fun, I'm not necessarily in the mindset to improve. Now, there's a s narrow slice of the psychographic market, right, that will say, I just want to get better and better. And I want to prove, I want to play against myself. I want to beat my high score. And that's where the leaderboards and stuff comes in. But it's not actually the broad market for VR. We find the broadest market for VR is casual, impulsive entertainment. People just looking to go out and have a good time with their friends and to have, have a story to tell. And so I think you have to really know your market if you're building entertainment products, know who your target consumer is and build for them. And there's a lot of people now building these kind of PVP, player versus player, esports games that are highly competitive and they're they're not earning very well so far i mean there's a couple of them that are i know virtuix um the omni arena is doing really well in its early test locations they got it yeah how's that going i actually tried the cyberith one um at the itzik show yeah. it was interesting and for people listening if you don't know it's a kind of redirected walking uh, what would you call it a omnidirectional treadmill yeah. kind of thing so the one i tried you're you're strapped in at your waist and you got these slippery shoes on and you kind of just walk in any direction you want to go. But what I found was I felt totally hammered drunk walking around in that thing. <laughs> like I, I had no control. I kept falling over and like, because you're, you're strapped in anyway, it doesn't matter. You can't really fall. But I just felt like I, I couldn't walk in a straight line. I was like, if somebody gave you 20 shots of tequila and then said, walk down the street, that's what I felt like. I was all wobbly kneed and it was not the most fun experience, but I guess with practice, it might feel and better. And I think, look, I think some of that is in the, is the, in the interface and between the hardware and the software and, and the control mechanism. I think if you try to use that as a, just a, like a, a, a human input device, it's going to be difficult. And I think there are some companies do that. I think, you know, Virtuix invented the device. They've been doing it for six or seven years. I think they've kind of perfected that. And even with that, it can be a little awkward, but once you get into it, it's the closest thing you can do to running in VR. And there's, there's just something visceral about like dual wielding shotguns in a zombie apocalypse and running around and zombies <laughs> in the head is just some, there's, there's something magic about that, Alan, I can tell you. It's interesting. I, I got to try a, a uh, another um, walking simulator and I, I, I'll look it up while we're talking, but uh, it was walking on a treadmill and it was bi-directional treadmill. So it wasn't omnidirectional, it was just bi-directional, but the way they had coded the experience, as long as you stayed within a green circle, you could just keep walking. And my first thought, because, you know, first thought is I'm going to walk into something because I'm in this big kind of thing. And, and then when you take a few steps, you know, after about the 10th step, you're like, wait a second, this is really cool. Like I'm, I'm walking and yet I'm not any closer to the wall. 
Yeah, and, and one of the things we saw um, in the large scale free roam, like the big warehouse scale free roam experiences is the longer, the further you walk, the deeper the immersion goes. And so, yeah. um, because eventually that's what happens. Your mind says, okay, actually I am walking, I'm in a bigger environment, I'm not gonna walk into something and it lets go of that reality and you enter that fantasy world where you realize you're in this environment. And, um, and if you can do that for a few minutes, like in some of these experiences, I've traveled as much as a half a kilometer and the immersion gets really, really deep when you're in it for a half an hour and you're just walking around freely. That's crazy. So, you know, in, in a business where square footage matters, one of the things that the void did really well is they employed redirected walking or the ability to kind of use the same set for multiple pieces of content in a very small footprint. What are you seeing around that sort of kind of location-based entertainment where they take over the whole space? Yeah. And I think all of the companies that started out with these big warehouse scale stuff are looking at realizing the economics. A, there's an economic piece of it. And B, there's just finding locations with 2,000 square feet of of open space without pillars in an urban environment can be really hard. Like I know a guy that was looking in London for a year trying to find a location for a zero latency location and he couldn't. So um, I think there's a couple of drivers there. One is just the cost and one is availability of space. And so they're all trying to figure out how to go smaller and smaller and smaller, but those are trade-offs, right? I mean, the very first free roam space I played was 4,000 square feet or 400 square meters. And it was a 50 minute wow. game and it was amazing. And but, you know, how many places can you operate something like that? And I think there's one in Chicago, MassVR, that's on that scale, too. But I, know, I don't think they've ever opened a second location. So, yeah, I think that, I think that there's a lot of trade-offs. And, and look, from an operating model standpoint, everybody's still trying to figure out where the sweet spot is. You know, the void is still struggling to try to figure out these single unit economics. I think Dreamscape is still trying to figure it out. Even Zero Latency, I think they just opened like their 30th, 7th location in Barcelona now or something last week. But I will, you know, I, I know I've spoken to all of their operators and some of them make money and some of them don't. And none of them are really getting their money back as fast as they wanted to. And so I think that the business models are still being fleshed out and finding that like once you see that once people figure out the sweet spot, everybody will rush into it. And the fact that people yeah. are still experimenting tells me nobody's really figured it out yet. It's interesting you say that because I think that's indicative of the whole industry, uh, VR, AR, from a corporate standpoint. We're really just touching the surface of what's possible and the business models around this. You know, it's funny, we're, we're writing financial models for our company and, okay, here's the products, here's the clients we want to go after. And I said, guys, you realize that everything we're doing here is just a complete yes, huh. and it's all going to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's literally no rhyme or reason for it because as we move and the industry is shifting, and, and you know, I say to this people, like, it's not just a new technology. It's a new industry. It's new business models. Everything's unproven. So how do you then, I guess you just got to keep experimenting, which was what everybody's doing. I tell people, this is the most complex market you can imagine. And the solution for solving complex problems is sitting in the problem space longer. Einstein said, I'm not smarter than everybody else. I just sit with my problems longer. And I think he, yeah. he was lying about that. He was smarter than everybody else. But, um, <laughs> but he did say with his problems, and there's a really interesting thing for the listeners. If you Google the Snowden Leadership Framework. It's a Harvard Business Review article. I think it was back in the 90s. And they talk about this thing called the Kneffen model. And Kneffen is, um, I think it's spelled um, C-N-E-F-Y-N or something like that. And it's a Gaelic word. And they talk about how to deal with business in different levels of complexity. And they say in, in a complex market, you have to stop trying to find the solution right away. 
And I think VR is that. And you're seeing a lot of companies experiment and share and be opening. And the thing I love about this industry is everybody seems willing to share, or most people, because they know it's day one. They know we haven't tapped the beginning of the market. And it's not a zero-sum game, right? Everybody can still win at this stage of the business. And so there's a lot of sharing and a lot of experimentation happening. And I love that. Yeah, it's it's really uh, a wonderful industry to be in. Um, I came from the music industry and music technology, and it was, I guess, it was a more mature industry. So there was sharing, but not really kind of at that level where it's like, here's all my information, or I'm on a podcast telling everybody about how VR and AR is working for our business. And you know, even just on this podcast, the XR for Business podcast, we've we've seen a really incredible sharing of knowledge. And I think this is one of the best things about this industry is people are willing to help. And like you mentioned, it's not a net sum game at yeah. all. Um, the industry as an entire industry is about $10 billion in 2019. We'll close off the year between 10 and 11 billion. And that's going to increase to about 500 billion by 20. Yeah, there's plenty of room for everybody, right? If new entrants stopped coming into the market, everybody in the business today that survived would be a billionaire. So that's not going to happen because people are continuing to rush into the market. But yeah, there's plenty of room for everybody right now. And, and it's really exciting to have been watching the industry grow. Like I did my first VR product in 1992. I've been watching this thing bubble up for 25 years. And, and it's nice to have seen is now the time or what? Oh, absolutely. Zero doubt in that. Like, I think the technology just wasn't there before. It just and, and the mobile phone revolution with really inexpensive, accessible, small, high-resolution LED screens and, um, or LCD screens and, and IMUs and, and tiny processors and all of the components that Palmer Lucky needed to build his first Oculus headset came out of the cell phone industry. And so we, we can thank the cell phone guys for making all this possible. Well, speaking of cell phone guys, you've got HTC as a major player. They actually sold their cell phone division to Google to focus Man, on Man, that VR. was crazy. Like, like, I agree. you know, talk about a bold move. And I hope, I hope they're successful because I love to see bold business moves rewarded. But that was, um, you know, that was a, a pretty risky move. But, you know, talk about belief, right? That's the manifestation of belief. Yeah, it's focused too. We're if they're all in on spatial computing in the future of this, and they they seem to be doing well out of home entertainment locations. I would say HTC is probably the leader. Oh, by far, like like not even nobody's even a close number two right now. And and some of that has been attitude, right? I mean, Ricard Stryber early on realized that they had an awareness problem, and he said, "All right, let's support the arcade business because that that's where people can at least." get an idea of what VR is like. And I criticized him publicly a little bit because, you know, the arcade owners back in the in the 80s, that whole business got basically disintermediated by the consumer gaming market, right? And so once console systems got really good and really affordable, people stopped going to arcades. And, and you know, and so in a way he was trying to get arcade people to build VR arcades so people would be able to buy VR at home and it would put the arcades out of business. And now that we're starting, starting to see more free roam, and less consumer adoption than anybody expected. I think that mo those models are starting to solidify a little bit. But you know, HTC saw early on that they had an awareness problem, and they're trying to fix the awareness problem. Whereas Oculus thinks they have a pricing problem, and so you know they come out with the Quest and they come out with the Rift S, and they give really hard technical limitations to both of them to hit a three ninety nine price point, thinking that's going to move the market. And so two different companies with two entirely different beliefs of what the problem is. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out this Christmas. Have you, uh, have you tried the Quest? I have, yeah. In fact, I just ordered one. I tried it early on uh, before it was released. Uh, obviously, I get to demo a lot of cool shit that's in development. One of the nice things about my job. 
But I finally broke down and ordered one and I'm going to see if I can't travel with it because I get so many people that I meet that haven't tried VR and I want to be able to just put a headset on them and say, check this shit out. Am I allowed to say that on your, on your podcast? You're allowed to say whatever you want, my friend. No, this is, this is a, a family show, but I believe that if you're passionate about something, these things come yeah, out. So, um, so, and funny, what got me over the line, because I'm a consumer, was they bundled Vader Immortal with it for Christmas. And so, you know, they're starting to learn about the whole notion of bundling and what's, you know, what's going to drive adoption. And then they just, then, you know, obviously they announced they acquired B Games last week. Yeah, that was cool. And you know, and, and really interesting. I wrote a, I wrote a, a blog post about that. And by the way, if, if anybody's interested, I write a weekly blog on location-based VR at bobcooney.com called um, Dropping In. So if you're interested, check that out. But my blog post last week was about the Facebook inter- acquisition of Beat Games and how, you know, trying to figure out why they did it. If you think back to the music games of um, Guitar Hero and Rock Band, those peripheral kits were really expensive, right? A couple of hundred bucks for the whole band set, yeah. 300 bucks, 350 for the Beatles one. And so I think music games have the ability to sell hardware. And, and I think Facebook realizes that and they decided to, you know, buy beat games and they're going to push that hard. And I think you're going to see a lot of new music coming in. It's a really exciting time. And how happy am I for those guys, the, the guys that started beat games and cashing out? And hopefully they made a bajillion dollars. I, well, we never know how much they're going to make. I think it was un, unrelated. Hopefully is, but, but uh, hopefully, they, uh, hopefully those guys cleaned up. I love, I love seeing entrepreneurs make money. Uh, hopefully they also keep Beat Saber available on other platforms. Yeah, absolutely. And they have to. Well, they don't have to, actually. And, and I think that there would be a massive community backlash if they didn't at this point. And you know, Oculus and Facebook, they're undergoing all kinds of scrutiny from all kinds of people. And they're going to have to... You know, they, they got to they gotta be careful with everything that they do right now and how it affects their brand and people's perception of them. Agreed. So let's go back to IAPA yeah. for a second. If we were to say the, these are the five highlights of IAPA this year, what would they be? Yeah, for me, I actually gave out, um, I, have a, I created my own award called the VR Bobble Award and um, for recognition of companies that are really doing not only good stuff, but innovative stuff in the space. And Rabbids, the big ride was one of them. Um, the VRsenal unattended Beat Saber cabinet was one of them. And there was one that really caught me by surprise. It was a company called Ballast VR, a d- diver, D-I-V-R, and they had a product called Ballast. And I had to actually throw on board shorts and get in a pool to try it. And, wow. and they have a waterproof headset basically built into a scuba mask with a snorkel. And you hold on to, you know, one of those underwater propulsion devices, like the little torpedo thing that you hold on to. Yeah, And it's hooked up to an air compressor, so it cavitates, and there's a fan that blows jet, a jet that blows the water on you. So you feel like you're moving underwater. And it was mind-blowing, man. It was fantastic. I was like screaming through my, um, through my snorkel. And I think that from a business model standpoint, you've got all of these resorts around the world that have pools that are underutilized and, and unmonetized. And now all of a sudden, you can drop hundred grand worth of equipment in there and charge 20 bucks for a, a seven minute underwater VR experience and, and start monetizing pools. And I think you're going to see resorts do that. And so that product blew me away and was really surprising. That is super cool. Think about this for all the people going on vacation over, over the holidays, how much can you really drink by the pool? Yeah. Don't absolutely. answer that question. And, and the ability, like one of the, one of the experiences was like free floating in space. So when you, when you get in a weightless pool environment, there's all kinds of things you can do. So you know, oh, I was wow. I was jetting through the lost city of Atlantis, but then all of a sudden I was free floating in space in the Inter- International Space Station, 
And that was really cool. And, and being in the water um, removes any notion of motion sickness as well. So super accessible. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a great, that was just a mind blowing experience for me and really changes the game when you can start doing VR in water. Like that was amazing. Super cool. Yeah. What else? Yeah, there was a, the, the VR bumper car was another one that, um, that, yeah, I know. So you take a 50 year old hard ride, you put um, a tracking system on it, you put on a headset and now all of a sudden they've gamified bumper cars and you're in this cyberpunk environment. It was a joint venture between a, a bumper car manufacturer called IE Park, a software company called um, Spree Interactive, which was formerly Holodeck VR, um, and a company called VR Coaster, which did the first VR roller coasters. And, um, and the VR roller coaster thing was a bit of a fad and it's kind of dropped down now because there's all kinds of throughput issues and roller coasters are high throughput rides, but bumper cars are not. And bumper cars are kind of some, they kind of boring and simple and you'd never do it more than once. Right. And so they've taken bumper cars and they've made them fun and engaging and replayable. And you're going up a ramp and, and the floor collapses and you feel like you're free falling and, yeah, a really amazing use of VR. And so that was, um, and that won a Brass Ring Award, which is one of the, the award ceremonies from, um, from IAPA this year. And so I, I expect to see that in a lot of theme parks going forward. That's super cool. I want to try that. Yeah, it was good. And rounding at the top five? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Top five. So, boy, that's a tough one. What other Bobble Awards were given? Yeah, well, oh, I gave one to Zero Latency, um, but that was like long overdue for their free roam stuff. And it, and I will give you, I'll, you know, I still think it's the best of the best in the free roam space. But one of the things that they did, which is speaking of brave moves, was they had developed, because they were first, they developed their own tracking system, right? They had to develop their own headset, their own gun, their own camera system. They used machine vision cameras, a stack of servers a mile high. It was a very expensive installation. And when the Windows Mixed Reality system came out, or before it came out from Microsoft, they were the earliest adopter of that. And what they did was they made their own stuff obsolete before their competition did. And it dropped the price of their system in half, made it more accessible, made it more flexible. And I think it's really hard for companies that invent solutions to let go of their own invention and adopt someone else's solution because it actually is better, cheaper, faster. And they did that really early. And I, I rarely see entrepreneurs do that. There's that whole not invented here syndrome, right? And they're so married to the technology. And these guys, as technically proficient as they were, just let go of that. And I think that was a really bold, brave move by the founders of the company. And I think it's paying off in spades for them. This is kind of the approach we've taken uh, at Metaverse in building a new platform marketplace. And we realized that, yes, we can make all sorts of great tech. We've built all sorts of things, motion tracking, volumetric capture. We've built all these things. But the technology is moving so fast and so rapidly that Microsoft, for example, they have their meta stage. It's a million bucks plus. But there's other people coming up that can do that for $100,000. Yeah, there was a company at Seagraph called, um, called Inverse. And, um, and they are doing it with uh, the new Azure Connect cameras. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's not difficult to do. So if you look at the technology and the way it's moving, my question is constantly, how do we disrupt an industry constantly and consistently disrupting itself? Yeah. Our answer to that is to build a marketplace that taps into all the newest technology for the needs of our customers who are corporate training and uh, enterprise training, that sort of thing. But being able to use all the latest, greatest technologies uh, and apply it to that because they will change dramatically over the next five years, 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to get back to location-based entertainment space, the innovation that has to happen there is around the business models, right? Because 
ultimately you're selling tickets and you got to sell enough tickets to pay for the hardware before the hardware becomes obsolete and you have to buy new hardware. And so I think that's been the challenge in that space is, um, you know, how do you buy something and know that you're going to get your a sufficient return on that invested capital before you have to either replace it or upgrade it? And I think that we're still we're still sorting that out. Well, I think that the the problem is the headset turnaround time. So I think your maximum you're going to get out of any headset at this point is two years. Yeah, but the headset's the least component of it. Like the headset's 500 bucks now, right? And the prices are going to continue to come down. And so, for example, the VRSenal cabinet sold for $40,000. If you have to upgrade the headset every six months and it costs you 500 bucks, that's almost an insignificant amount of money. I think it's, and that's what I tell operators too, is like, don't get too caught up in the, the display technology getting better and better and faster and faster. I think that when you look at the whole stack of what you have to do technology-wise, especially in the free roam space, like if you'd invested a half a million dollars or three quarters of a million dollars into a zero latency system with machine vision cameras, and now all of a sudden you can do it with inside out tracking in the headset, you've literally thrown away $200,000 worth of hardware in 12 months, right? That's, that's hard to recoup. And so it's, that, it's the bigger systems that have a little more technical heft to it, a lot more infrastructure, and especially around tracking systems, which are essentially now going to be free, which is awesome. It is pretty awesome. And you know, it's- If you didn't buy one yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And the inside out tracking was kind of this, this unicorn myth that maybe it would come and it, it came and it came fast and it's here and it's just, that's the new standard. Yeah. And it, look, and it comes with some limitations, but I'm, I got to believe that those limitations are going to go away as like the peripheral vision and, the, and if you move your hands out from in front of your face- because um, they're using the cameras now for hand tracking as well, right? And so how do you track an object that isn't in your direct line of sight, whether it's for hand tracking or controller tracking or whatever? But I'm sure they're going to figure that out in the next 12 months. I think, honestly, and I had uh, Alvin from HTC on, and they, they've kind of figured this out a little bit with their focus. They use inside-out tracking, plus they use the, the base stations. Yeah. So you kind of have this triangulated, uh, with, I think he said with four base stations and the inside out tracking, you can go up to something like 20,000 square feet. Uh, I, I didn't understand how that was possible. And, and look, yeah, and, hi, and I think hybrid tracking really is the future for the large free roam VR stuff. And a combination of inside out and outside in is going to be where we are. And that's going to be where we settle. And But you won't need $200,000 worth of optical tracking cameras. You'll be able to do it with a handful of infrared laser cameras or whatever. But the prices of that stuff is going to come down to the point where you can mix and match the technologies into a solution that eliminate all the weak spots. And I think that's the next 12 months. That's going to be where all the evolution is in the technology of, of the out-of-home free roam space is those hybrid tracking systems. Amazing. So we've, we've gone through a lot today, but what problem in the world do you want to see solved using XR technologies? That's a great question. Thank you. And this has nothing to do with location-based VR or entertainment. I want to see it being used for greater interpersonal connection and to create safe spaces for people to be more vulnerable in their communications. And I think that that's one of the greatest challenges that we have in society today is kind of a loneliness problem that's leading to an epidemic of, of, of suicide and depression. And, um, and I think that it's a really powerful tool. And as we get better virtual telepresence and, and more avatars that are more communicative, I don't think they have to be photorealistic, but I think using, I want to see, I want to see people using the technology to bring people closer together. Think about the combination of 
language translation and virtual telepresence and how that breaks down the boundaries, the geopolitical boundaries that keep us separated as humans around the world. Like that's, that's what I want to see. That's an amazing vision. And I think uh, we're only a, a few years away from that being ubiquitous. So I think, I think within five years, we'll be able to have face-to-face -face meaningful communication across borders and across languages. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on governments and, and the people who want to keep us separated um, for all kinds of reasons. And so it'll be interesting to see how that ripples through the geopolitical society of the world in the next five years. It's going to be a, fasc it's a fascinating time to be alive, Alan. It really is. Thank you so much, Bob. This has been amazing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startups, studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know, reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, -on one-hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is going to drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.